You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. The very first date that Christine and I went on was a long, long time ago. It was on February the 14th, which puts a lot of pressure on the first date. And we went to see the movie Saving Private Ryan. I know, super romantic. (laughs) Things got marginally better from there, I think. And there's a whole story there, but that's for another time. I'm not here to talk about my dating life and my lack of romance. I wanted to talk about the movie. The movie, for those of you who haven't seen it for a long time or maybe never have seen it, is about a small band of soldiers who are sent to find Private Ryan, the guy in the title, who is the last of four brothers still living in World War II as other brothers had been killed in combat, and to send him home so his mother has one last remaining son. And Captain Miller, the leader of this mission, urges Private Ryan to earn his rescue, to live a life that makes the cost of rescuing him worth it. And at the end of the movie, Private Ryan says this, I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. And then he turns to his wife and begs, Tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. By what measure? How should we decide if Private Ryan has lived a good life? What is the good life? In the 4th century BCE, Plato, one of the first philosophers, defined the good life as one in which a person exhibits perfect virtue, defined as reasonable restraint and civic duty. Probably a little different than we define the good life today. His disciple, Aristotle, took it a bit further and said the good life is the one in which a person cultivates and exercises their rational faculties by, for example, engaging in scientific inquiry, philosophical discussion, of course philosophers think that philosophical discussion is the good life, that makes sense, right? Artistic creation, and this one got me by surprise, or legislation, creating laws, the good life, I I don't know. And this idea uh, that the good life was primarily rational and intellectually driven dominated throughout modernism. In fact, René Descartes, who's famous for saying, I think, therefore I am, because I have the ability to think, proves that I exist, he defined the good life as the happiness we receive from doing what is right and reasonable. Again, intellectually driven. Of course, postmodernism had something to say about that, and, and Nietzsche maybe was one voice among many that, that redefined the good life as free from fear of gods or crowds. You see, in postmodernism, there is no shared concept of the good life because the idea of the good life in itself is merely a construct of a culture dominated by the Christian meta narrative meant to subjugate us by oppression. And so the good life then is discovered when you live by your own concept of what is good without fear of what other people might say about it or even what God might say about it. And yet despite this contention, we continue to define and try to strive for what is good. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, created a Better Life Index. You can see a a map of that there on the world. And they, 
they ask people to rank 11 topics. What matters most when it comes to defining the good life? And so you'd rank these 11 topics. Health came out as the top one in Canada and China and Ukraine. I wonder if that's changing right now with the war going on there. I wonder if it's changing to safety. Housing is another one, Kenya, and there's a cluster throughout the Caribbean and Northeast South America that said that's the most important ingredient to the good life. Jobs, very few countries said jobs was most important. Income, Uganda, Iran, and a few others said income was the most important indicator. Civic engagement, hello, seems to be still living under platonic views of what the good life is. Some small islands in the Caribbean. Work-life balance as the most important in Australia, which makes sense, right? That just fits their stereotype. Uh, and in Nicaragua. Uh, Education was the most important part of the good life in Brazil, Mexico, and Guatemala. The environment was most important in Haiti and a few other countries. Community, social networks in Jamaica, again, sort of playing to the stereotype. And safety in Japan and Honduras. Life satisfaction, just feeling good about life, was most important in the United States, the Netherlands, Nigeria, and India. These 11 factors which is most important. You can go to their website and rank them yourself and contribute to their research, but what's interesting to me is that the Psalms actually talk a lot about the good life. The Psalmists have another word for it. It's shalom, often translated as peace. It's this deep sense of well-being marked by the fullness of life. It's the same idea that's often captured in the word blessed that we read earlier in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one. Fulfilled is the one. The one who, who follows the law of God is living the good life. And what's interesting to me is that the Psalms address each of these 11 factors that people have identified as essential to the good life. In fact, Psalm 104, our passage, identifies many of them explicitly. See, the psalmist clearly see God as the source and the sustainer of the good life because God is the source and the sustainer of our physical health. We see this in verse 29. At the end, uh, he says, The psalmist says, when you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Our very breath is in the hand of God. Our health is in the hand of God. Verse 30, when you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. And in the context, it's speaking specifically of animals, but but also is applied to humans, to humanity. Throughout the Psalms, God rescues the psalmist in the face face of disease, in the face of death, in the face of destruction. And, and the Psalms teach us, therefore, that it's right for us to turn to God when we are sick, whether that's physically or mentally or emotionally or relationally or spiritually. Whenever we have disease in our life, we are to turn to God because he is the source and sustainer of our physical health and vitality. And then in verse 30, it says, when you send your spirit, that's the same word in Hebrew, which the psalm was written as breath. When God breathes on us, we are renewed. God is the source and the sustainer of the good life because God is the source and sustainer of our physical health and vitality. Now, as Preston reminded us a couple of weeks ago, we live in an era of medicines and vaccines and treatments to help cure our illnesses and, and improve our vital signs. I'm on one currently that lowers my blood pressure. 
And sometimes we forget that these are gifts of God. We sometimes just assume they're inventions of humanity and we live as if God had nothing to do with it. And Preston reminded us that, that God is the source and sustainer of life and often he chooses to sustain our lives through medicine, vaccine, and treatment. And whether by medicine or miracle, God is the source of that and sustainer of our physical health and vitality. It's God's gift. It's how he sustains us. What about housing? That's the second indicator on our list. Look at verse 17. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. Skip to verse 22, 21. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. Again, the source and sustainer of life, even for our food. The sun rises and they steal away. They turn and lie down in their dens. Again, speaking specifically of animals that God provides shelter and housing for them, but the rest of the Psalms speak of God being a home for humans as well. Probably the most famous Psalm in the entire book is Psalm 23, and in verse 6 it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He provides a house for me and I will live there. And even more than that, Psalm 90 verse 1 and other verses as well in the book of Psalms indicate that the Lord himself is our dwelling place. He is our house. And so every time that you enter your house, even after the service today, when you enter your house or your apartment or your room, whatever you call home, you can pause and thank God that he is the ultimate dwelling place. He is the ultimate home. He is the source and the sustainer of the good life because he is our shelter and he is our home. The good life also includes not only physical vitality and housing, but also meaningful, secure work and economic security. And again, we see hints of this in the psalm. The ships that travel to and fro across the ocean for economic trade in verse 26. And the implication is that it's actually pretty explicit that God is the one that makes that possible. Because as we said, in, in, when Mike was getting baptized, the sea is a symbol of chaos. Water is a symbol of chaos and destruction. But because of God and his presence, it now becomes a place of economic activity. God brings fruit even out of chaos chaos and destruction. This is a theme throughout scripture. God gives work to humans. He gave it to them at creation. He placed them in the garden to care for, and he exhorts us through the writers of scripture to do our work for him and for his glory, that when we do our work in the presence of God, we are ultimately serving Jesus, not the people around us. You see, the Psalms are clear. God is the source and the sustainer of the good life because he gives our work meaning. And as we saw earlier, he provides the resources that we need for life often through our work and sometimes through the work of others. Now, we, when it comes to work, we want to know that our contribution is valued and makes a difference. And this is the importance of civic engagement. Psalm 104 reflects on God's creative and sustaining power through the lens of creation. You can almost see the days of creation laid out in the psalm from Genesis chapter 1, which just takes us back there where God creates the garden and then places humans in the garden to work it and care for it. Okay, do you understand how significant this is? 
This would be like you doing the ultimate Lego masterpiece castle and then handing it to your three-year-old to care and sustain it, right? This is what God did for us. And the image is that we are priests in God's temple. We serve God by our work and we participate in the kingdom. We help build the kingdom through our work. And so in 1 Corinthians, we're urged to give ourselves fully to our work because we know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. The ancient Roman philosopher Maximus Decimus Meridius, also known as Gladiator, (laughs) said what we do in life echoes in eternity. And he's right. What we do in life makes a difference and that contributes to the good life. Part of civic engagement is the ability to contribute meaningfully and purposefully. Another part is knowing that our voice is heard, that our voice matters. And again, the Psalms assure us that our voice is heard and our voice does matter. We see it through the entire book. The psalmists lay their joys and their complaints and their laments and their frustrations and disappointments and desires before God with the confidence that God hears them and will act and do what is right. Over and over again in scripture, we are invited, we're urged to bring our prayers and our petitions and our thanksgiving before God because God hears our prayers. Our prayers and our petitions and our thanksgiving matter to God. God is the source and the sustainer of the good life because God hears us and values our contribution to his kingdom. Of course, The Australians are right. The good life is not all work, right? We want to have a good work-life balance. And some, like people in Australia and Nicaragua, I believe it was, valued this as the most important factor of the good life. And even here we see that God is the source and the sustainer. It's hinted at in verse 23. Then people go out to their work, to their labor until evening. Right? There's a limit to our work, that's ordained by God. Rest is good, rest is necessary. Rest is a blessing, a gift from God. It's a theme throughout the Bible. God ordains it and models it in creation where he creates for six days and on the seventh day he rests. And this is to be a pattern for us through our lives. Jesus modeled it when he was involved in an urgent, important ministry, he would often withdraw from the crowds and take some time by himself. In Matthew chapter, in Matthew he actually invites us to come to him if we are weak and weary and we will find rest in Jesus because he is the only true source of rest. The psalmist picks it up, this idea in Psalm 62 verse one, truly my soul finds rest in God. Truly my soul finds rest in God, not in our nap, not in our recreation, not in our vacation. These are all gifts from God, but in God. God. God is the source and sustainer of the good life because God is our source of rest. Education is another factor in living the good life. And again, the Psalms indicate God is the source of knowledge 
and learning. It's hinted at in verse 24. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The psalmist is looking at all of creation. He looks at the waters above. They believe that, that there was waters above the firmament of the sky and there's waters below the earth. And he looks starting in the heavens and then he looks at the earth and then he looks at the waters below the earth. And he comes to this conclusion. Everything fits together perfectly. The land and the sea, night and day, land creatures and sea creatures, it testifies to the wisdom of God. It's God's wisdom that allows life to be orderly and wonderful. This is more explicit in Psalm 111 verse 10 where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding, which then the book of Proverbs picks up on and there's multiple places we could turn to for this. But for example, chapter six, verse two, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now I know many of you are about to start school or send kids off to school this week or the next, and you're gonna learn all kinds of things. And in the middle of this, I want you to remember that everything you learn comes from God. God is the source and the sustainer of the good life because he is the source of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. A seventh factor that contributes to the good life is the environment. The OECD measures for two things when they talk about the environment, air quality and access to water. And again, we see that God in, in Psalm 104 is the source and sustainer of the good life because he is the source and the sustainer of creation. He's the source and the sustainer of the environment, including the water that we need. Look at what it says in, in uh, verse 10. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. And then verse 14, he makes grass grow for the cattle from this water and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. God provides the water that we need in the environment that we need. I saw this firsthand a few, quite a few years ago, probably 13 years ago or, or more, when I got to travel to Kenya and Uganda with an organization called the Water School. And in Kenya and Uganda, and much of the, that area of the world within 40 degrees of the equator, contaminated water is a huge problem. Access to clean water is a huge problem. And they discovered, the water school discovered that, that in order to get clean water, you didn't need complicated and expensive uh, filters and purifiers that you needed to train people to upkeep and there were no parts to, to, uh, to repair them when they broke down. They discovered that if you placed water, contaminated water in a plastic bottle in the sun for a day, the solar rays from the sun within 40 degrees of the equator hit the earth at just the right angle to kill all of the E. coli and other bacteria in the water, and it becomes pure and clean. Now, SOTUS, solar disinfection, doesn't solve all the challenges of access to clean water in the environment. It's just one example of how God is the source of the good life, because in this case, God is the source of clean water and purifying of water. Of course, God invites us to participate in the issues in our culture and in our environment. We talked about that in civic engagement. Your work, your contribution to the kingdom matters. 
but God is the ultimate source. Now, if the last three years have taught us anything, it's that, first of all, we have no way of predicting the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And secondly, and maybe very importantly, and, and we talked, Yuji talked about that a little bit already, we need community and relationship. This is one of the key factors to the good life. And when we strive for community, we're really asking two questions. Do I belong? Do we have a sense of home? We talked about that under housing and shelter as God is our ultimate shelter. And do I have people to catch me when I fall and carry me when, I weak, when I'm weak? Now, this psalm doesn't specifically talk about community, but it's a, it's a theme throughout the entire book of the psalms and definitely through the Bible. I'll give you an example, just one, for the sake of time. Psalm 68, verse 5 and 6. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonely in families. Of course, again, we have a role to play in this. Civic engagement, our contribution matters, but God is the one who does it because God is the source and the sustainer of the good life because he adopts us into his family and strengthens us when we're weak. Community is a factor often in feeling safe, which is another factor for the good life. And again, the Psalms describe God as the ultimate source of safety. David Taylor in his book, Open and Unafraid, which we're following right now, says this. In the context of the Psalms, death appears like a watery, monstrous force. We talked about this. It pulls us into the underworld of Sheol, which is not just hell or the grave, but it's, it's a living death, life or death in the midst of life. And it confronts us daily with our mortality, reminding us that we are but dust. See, death is not just the lack of vital signs in the Psalms. Death in the Psalms is the disordering of all, God that, all that God has ordered. And so death wants to return us to dust because God formed us out of dust. He ordered us out of dust, and death wants to disorder that. Death wants to bring chaos and destruction and isolation, and it often in Scripture it's symbolized by water. We see this in our Psalm, verse 5. He, God, set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. And you covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. This brings to mind the state of the world at creation, right? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it's covered by water. It's formless. It's empty. It's dark. It's, it's chaos. And it also brings to mind the state of the world at the flood, right? A little bit later in Genesis when the springs of the deep break open and the floodgates of heaven break open and the earth is covered with water to the top of the mountains, in fact, over the top of the mountains and every living thing that moves on land perishes. Chaos, death, destruction, covered in water. Let's keep going, verse seven. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross, and never again will they cover the earth. God is the commander of the forces of destruction and chaos. He prevents creation from returning to a state of emptiness and disorder. He restricts the forces of chaos and death in our world. And not only does he restrict them, he transforms them. Let's skip ahead to verse 25. There is the sea, again, symbol of chaos, death, destruction, vast and spacious, teeming 
with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. The place of creation, or sorry, the place of chaos becomes a place of life, teeming with life, because God has the power to bring life and order out of chaos and destruction. Keep going, verse 26, or sorry, uh, yeah, verse 26, there the ships go to and fro. We talked about that already, the place of chaos becoming a place of prosperity. And then at the end of verse 26, and Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. Leviathan is a mythological creature. He's a terrifying sea monster that threatens our life, threatens our safety, our well-being. And I love how the study notes in my NIV Bible put it, this fearless mythological monster of the deep is merely God's harmless pet playing in the ocean, right? This is what God does. God is the source and the sustainer of the good life because he's the ultimate source of safety. He transforms those forces that threaten us and threaten the order in our world with chaos and destruction into pets that frolic in oceans. He knows we're fragile and he protects us and sustains us in the midst of danger. It reminds me again of Psalm 23 I memorized in the King James when I was little. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. You're with me and I'm safe. The final factor that the OECD index found to be important for living the good life was life satisfaction, a sense of well-being about life. And many would consider this the most important of the 11 factors. Plato, that ancient philosopher, not only taught that the good life is one in which a person exhibits perfect virtue seen by reasonable restraint and engaging in civic duty, he believed that the practice of these virtues would result in true happiness, which he defined as the absence of desire. In other words, you restrained your appetites to the point where you no longer wanted things, and then you could be truly happy and you would be living the good life. Clearly, our society doesn't believe this anymore because true life satisfaction doesn't come through restraining our appetites and desires. Uh, it comes through fulfilling our appetites and pursuing whatever you think will make you ultimately happy. We believe that we will only truly experience the good life when we've been fulfilled materially, sexually, relationally, politically, financially, socially, whatever it is, we've got to fulfill ourselves in that way. Here's the problem. That experiment has already been tried and it didn't work. The writer of Ecclesiastes pursued the good life by pursuing exactly those things. Not through reasonable restraint, but trying to fulfill all of his appetites and desires. And his conclusion, it's vanity. It's empty. It's like chasing the wind. We know what that's like in Lethbridge, right? Have you ever been in the parking lot and you accidentally open both doors and that important piece of paper goes flying out of the door and you run across the parking lot trying to pick it up and every time it stops and you bend over, it just scoots along further and it's super funny if it's happening to somebody else but really frustrating <laughs> if it's happening to you. It's empty. And I think our pop culture is starting to pick up on this. They're starting to learn the same lessons that the writer of Ecclesiastes learned. We see it in many of our popular shows on Netflix or, or Prime. People who are chasing 
safety and security, riches, freedom, fulfillment, even for the sake of their family, not just for themselves, but, but to try to prop up their family and make their family secure, and it leads to isolation, chaos, and death, what the Psalms call Sheol, non-living. Watch your shows through that lens and see if that's not true. Psalm 104 reminds us that God is the source and the sustainer of the good life because only God fully satisfies. Verse 15, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants, sorry, verse 14, plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Again, this takes me to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. This was Paul's experience. Paul, one of the first converts to Christianity, the first missionary who took the message of Jesus to the Gentile world, the Roman Empire. It's why he could write to his congregation in Philippi, Philippians 4, 12 and 13, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. God is the source and sustainer of the good life because only God fully satisfies. And I think most of you would probably agree with this point. God is the source and the sustainer of life. He's the source and the sustainer even of the good life. At least we'd agree intellectually with that. But the psalmist challenges us to not only agree intellectually, but to orient our whole lives towards this reality. You see, according to the psalmists, we're not so much rational beings as argued by Descartes, I think therefore I am, we are relational beings. I love, therefore I am. And so it's not enough to know the facts about the good life and the facts about God. We have to know God. We need to experience God as the source and the sustainer of the good life. We need to orient our lives and our pursuits and our desires toward him. And as we grow in our experience of God as the source and the sustainer of the good life, then we can join the psalmist in saying these words, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord, which I have paraphrased as, may he rejoice in our rejoicings. Praise the Lord, my soul. Praise the Lord. That's something that would be good for us to practice, and so we're going to do that right now. I invite you to stand and sing with us as we praise God together. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.